Tuesday, June 29th, 2021. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? or a podcast from WABE answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, infection and vaccination both provide some immune protection against the coronavirus. Although we prefer to have more folks vaccinated, the reality is that many people got infected. Joshua White, a quantitative biologist at Georgia Tech, joins me to discuss the upsides and downsides of each. And we'll look at how many Georgians could have some protection against future coronavirus infection. That's next. You love free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. Despite the state's lagging vaccination numbers, two-thirds of Georgians could have some immune protection against the coronavirus, many of them through natural infection. That's according to research from Georgia Tech, headed by quantitative biologist Joshua Weitz. He's with me now to discuss what that level of protection could mean for the future of the pandemic in the state. Joshua, thanks for talking with me. Thanks for having me on, Sam. I want to start just by getting your assessment of this goal that the Biden administration set for July 4th. It's less than a week away. The president said that he was hoping that 70 percent of adults, this is everyone over 18 years old, would have had at least one COVID-19 vaccine shot by July 4th. Um, Before we get into kind of where we are with that goal, what do you make of that as a goal? I think the intent is good to aim for something that can be both achievable and meaningful. And obviously, they've gotten quite close. If we look at nationwide in terms of the fraction of adults, 18 plus, who've gotten at least one dose. It's about two-thirds of such individuals. And I believe at this point, we're at 55% plus in terms of adults who are fully vaccinated. So there's obviously been some significant successes, and we can see the benefits accrued in terms of the rates of case decline, meaning we're seeing significantly fewer cases and also fewer hospitalizations and fatalities, and this has been sustained. So overall, that is very good news. Now, there's significant heterogeneity, and I think we have to also be worried about stalling and also about accepting a single benchmark as the only acceptable metric, because even if the overall numbers are good, there's certainly significant disparities in terms of levels between states and even within states. 
You know, less than a week out from this goal, the administration has now said they don't think that it's going to be reached. What should the average person make of that? And you mentioned the decline that we've seen in, in cases and in hospitalizations and deaths as well. Can we tie that directly to the number of shots that have gone into arms over the last six months? The vaccines are safe, effective, and widely available. The way that they were introduced was judged by the extent to which they reduce severe infections. So I think that we should interpret the widespread decline, both in the United States and in other countries around the world that have had the same sort of large-scale population-level scale-up of vaccines as reflecting their benefits, not just in terms of ensuring that those who are vaccinated have a significantly lower chance of having a severe infection in the case they are infected, but even reducing the chance of infection and reducing the chance of transmission. So yes, there is clearly a benefit and we are seeing the consequences. Now, the tricky thing is with respect to the precise level at which we should declare or not success. And I think that's the part that gets trickier. There is not necessarily a specific number, which if we somehow reach that number, it's a good goal and we should get to it, but we should try to push really beyond that goal. Because even if 70% of individuals are vaccinated who are eligible, that would mean that 30% are not. And those 30% are almost certainly vulnerable. Now, there's some chance that maybe some of that 30% had already been infected and we're beginning to learn more about the long-term immune protection benefits of prior infections. But there's many indications, essentially, that we have a need to have individuals who have been previously infected also get vaccinated because that combination seems to really accrue the most protective benefits. So I think what we're beginning to see in the sustained nature of this trough in cases is a reflection of the power of vaccines. I frequently remind myself that vaccination is only one way by which an individual might gain some kind of immune protection. You mentioned natural infection. People who contracted COVID-19 would carry with them into the future some kind of immune protection. So do we know how many people that could be, what what percentage of, of the population at a national level, even at a more granular level, m- might have some kind of protection from prior infection? So we do understand that individuals who have been previously infected are certainly less likely to be infected for a significant amount of time. There's some, let's say, lack of understanding with respect to some protection of variants, and we believe that vaccines are going to be the more effective route to have that long-term protection. With respect to the numbers, the number of COVID cases were significantly under-ascertained, meaning for every case that was documented, There's a general consensus now emerging, and the CDC puts this around one in four, maybe even more, cases. So meaning for every case that was found, there were probably four plus actual cases. And what that means is that we've long passed the point where there's almost certainly been 100 million plus cases in the United States. This also implies that in places like Georgia, we may be seeing some of the side effects of this large-scale number of individuals who may have been infected perhaps unwittingly with a mild asymptomatic case or maybe a case that was never documented. And so those two things are intersecting to provide protection now, but they come with a big danger, which is if you are not sure that you 
previously were infected, even if you were, you should get vaccinated, relying upon natural infection as a route to getting immunity is fraught. This Delta variant and other variants are continuing to circulate in the community. And so the best route to provide yourself protection and really to protect those around you, including individuals who may be medically counterindicated or unable to get a vaccine yet, is to get vaccinated. So that's the part when we talk about the benefits. Yes, there are going to be protection for individuals who've been vaccinated. That's our primary route. They're probably seeing some of the secondary effects of prior infections, but the practical, safe, and ethical route to getting large-scale population immunity is through vaccinations. So I want to talk a little bit about that population level. If we can assume that, say here in Georgia, a substantial percentage of the population does have some kind of immunity from natural infection, does it make Georgia's uh, less than stellar vaccination numbers look a little different? If, if we're just purely thinking about the way that this virus stays alive as, as a, an active public health threat, if, if there's a lot of people who have some kind of immune protection without vaccination, is, isn't that ultimately still a positive thing? Well, let's be careful about the word positive thing, because we had to go through a gauntlet of infections, hospitalizations, and fatalities to get there. So let me give a contrast, and I'll give three versions of how to build up significant population immunity. You could go the Vermont route, the South Dakota route, or the Georgia route. The Vermont route is an example of one in which the levels of infection per capita are probably about one in three that in Georgia. And they've done even better than us by far in terms of vaccinations. So that on aggregate, we estimate that they have something like 75% population level immunity, meaning three out of every four individuals has probably some level of immunity, and the bulk of that is through vaccinations. In contrast, South Dakota may have similar population level immunity, except they've only had about half the folks vaccinated. So they've had about 50% or more, we think, who may have been infected significantly high levels of infections. So they could reach that same level now, but look at the difference in terms of hospitalizations and fatalities per capita. South Dakota, Vermont, there's no comparison. Georgia is somewhere in between. And yet at the moment, do not have, by our estimates, the same population level of immunity of either. And that's because we didn't do as bad in terms of infections as South Dakota did, but we have not done nearly as well as a place like Vermont. So there's still a significant way to go. And what this probably means for Georgia is a long plateau-like phase of continuing pockets of infections in clusters of vulnerable individuals, despite the fact that there are these accrued effects of uh, prior infections plus our vaccines, which really we'd like to make up that gap faster than making it up on the infection side. I understand that your group does a lot of work kind of estimating what these levels of, you know, community immunity might might be. Where is Georgia? Can we put a, a number on the percentage of the population we think might have some kind of protection by, by any means? So we have tried to, and we think it's something like two out of three in terms of where we think there's a population level immunity, individuals who are no longer immunologically naive. And that could mean that there still may have some chance of infection, but the risk of its severe infection has dropped down significantly. On the other hand, that's being comprised of a large fraction of individuals who had infections who would probably have not yet gotten vaccinated, and some individuals who've never been infected and have not been vaccinated. And that subgroup is the one that we're worried about. 
it's clear that reaching and continuing to reach that 35% of the population, we're going to have to vaccinate many more than that because we don't always know who those uninfected individuals are. So the reality is that in Georgia, we have a very long way to go where our vaccination rates continue to lag. So there's a large room to make up here in order to protect individuals who may be vulnerable to having a severe outcome. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? I'm Sam Whitehead talking today with Joshua White, a quantitative biologist at Georgia Tech, about the levels of community immunity against the coronavirus in Georgia. On one hand, there's there's one way to look at that, which is 35 percent of a, of a state with upwards of 10 million people is a long way to go. But I also think that there's someone who might hear that 65 percent number and think, oh, well, maybe that's a little bit further along than we thought when, when it comes to just the number of people walking around who might have some kind of protection. I agree. One of the reasons that we began to study this is that although we prefer to have more folks vaccinated. The reality is that vaccines were not available. There are many reasons why it was very hard to isolate in a way that would keep one protected from an infection. And despite the best of intentions, whether it was because of work or social context or caretaking, many people got infected. Individuals who have prior infections have some level, almost certainly, of immunological memory that's going to provide protection against subsequent infection or against severe infection. And that is good news. So my take on this right now is that if we look around and ask, should we expect the same kinds of waves as we saw before? And I realize this is hazardous to make this kind of prognostication, but I think in making such forecasts or prognostications, one has to keep in mind that even despite the lower levels in Georgia, the reality is in a place like Georgia or South Dakota, the fact that so many people had been infected does limit the extent to which the virus can continue to spread and cause severe disease. And I think one of the big challenges moving forward is in the past, first there were cases, then there were hospitalizations, and then there came the fatalities. And it was inevitable and you could see it build up over time. It was never just cases. But now there is something different that we have to be cognizant and mindful of. With vaccines, it potentially turns an exposure or even an infection into a mild case. And so cases stop having the same link between this inevitable march through a peak of cases and then hospitalizations and fatalities. So you are right, and a listener who's thinking about this would also be right, is that we may not be as worse off or badly off based on our vaccine levels. Unfortunately, that's because per capita and compared to some other states, we have been worse off in terms of our overall levels. And now that does provide this secondary consequence, which is some level of population level immunity, which is going to limit the ability of an infectious individual to spread to some other naive individual. The thing that I wonder about, we're still learning a lot about how long immune protection, say from natural infection or even from vaccination actually lasts. How does the kind of fact that immunity does wane over time play into how we should think about these numbers? I think this is a question that's going to keep coming back because we are not done with COVID-19. There had been a sense 
that if we could get to this number, 70% or 75%, that somehow it would go away. And that's certainly not going to be the case. And there are many reasons for that. First of all, globally, that's not where things are. And in places, paradoxically, elsewhere in the world that have done terrific jobs of restricting infections, right now, unless they immediately take this Vermont route and scale up their vaccinations, they're incredibly vulnerable. And so this, again, points out that we're not at all at the same place. And the other component that's going to be tricky, of course, is that there are going to be different strains that are circulating. And when we think about the long-term benefits of vaccines, then there can be a question of whether or not this is a matter of boosting more of the same or essentially presenting and training our own immune systems to recognize other variants that perhaps the prior vaccines had not sufficiently trained us. And that is something that I think continue is going to have to be monitored. Right now, it's incredible the extent to which, despite variation, the messenger RNA base vaccines continue to show incredibly high levels of protective benefits. We're also understanding that some of these natural infections are almost certainly going to provide benefits, and I think we understand now, on the order of many months, if not years plus, how long that is remains to be explored and monitored. It's going to have to continue to be monitored. And so I think in the long term, there's maybe a change, and people have discussed this, my colleagues, Jennifer Levine, Rustam Anti, and others over at Emory University have talked about ways in which COVID-19 could become endemic, which is sort of always there, but there's an outcome in which it becomes endemic, but mild. Going from acute critical disease to endemic mild disease, that's just one outcome. It's not the only one. It's not inevitable. But that's something that we're going to have to continue to monitor. And hopefully vaccines play a role in making it so by giving so much population immunity that it starts to reduce the frequency of cases, outbreaks, and also the chance that a vulnerable individual gets infected, exposed, and has this severe outcome. I mean, how do you envision that potential outcome where we have this kind of churn of, you know, a small percentage of the population, either because they're people born uh, and not yet immunized, maybe they're immune protection is waning over time after natural infection or or vaccination that, you know, a small percentage of the population is exposed, a certain number gets sick, and, you know, we don't see the kind of pandemic outbreaks like we've seen over the last year. What is is your vision for what that world looks like? This is a hard question, Sam. It's a really hard question. So let me just maybe speculate here for a moment. One can envision circumstances by which there are cases but the cases don't have that same link to the frequency of hospitalizations and fatalities. But the reason we stopped major components of our basic societal functioning, right, last year, is not because of the number of cases. It was always because of the risk of fatality. And so if this becomes an endemic circulating predominantly mild disease, then the case counts won't be the barometer by which we should decide to whether shut down or transform society in different ways, but there will be a different kind of outcome. So I think that's what we're going to have to monitor if we think about an infection fatality rate or a hospitalization rate. In other words, what is the risk that if you're infected, you're going to end up in a hospital or worse in the ICU or worse with a fatal case? When those numbers begin to drop, 
and total background cases themselves are dropping, then it's possible that we are living despite the virus, right? Instead of having to shut things down as a response. Younger individuals almost certainly have more mild, sometimes even asymptomatic cases compared to older individuals. So you gave the this example of newborns who are vulnerable and even younger individuals. We have a shape of this curve. It could have been that younger individuals were at severe risk of severe infection. That would totally have transformed the reaction uh, of the community and also just transformed the way this disease spread. Because there seems to be this significant bias towards mild asymptomatic cases in the young, that could mean that with time, if we vaccinate the old and older adolescents on plus, and new individuals may become susceptible, but it's just a cold, there could be a circumstance by which this becomes something that does occasionally cause severe outcomes, but for the most part is a mild circulating endemic disease. I think that now is a time, uh, July 4th, that a lot of people are going to be reflecting on, you know, what the last year and a half has been like and, and where things really go from here. So what is your reflection on, on this moment, where we find ourselves uh, in, in the pandemic? This moment is one which maybe for the first time since January 2020, I have some optimism that there is a chance to restore more and more semblances of normalcy. It is clear the vaccines work. So my message would simply be, if you have not yet been vaccinated, get vaccinated. Looking forward to July 4th, I think for individuals who are vaccinated, they should have confidence that they can interact socially for groups particularly outdoors and even in indoor contexts. And for those who are not yet vaccinated, I would still hope that this could be a summer that they can reflect before the fall school begins, before large numbers of children are back in schools, that they take their steps now because there will be cases spreading amongst unvaccinated younger individuals. And if you're an older individual who's not yet been vaccinated, there's going to be that chance that some individual unwittingly is going to pass on an infection to you. So I guess that would really be where, where I see things now, that we're seeing all the indications of growing population-level immunity, monitoring for the consequences of variants. But I think as long as we continue to push ahead and not stop at this 70% number as a goal to reach for, but continue to push even past it, I think there's a chance that more and more of the things that we all like to do, socialize, being in groups, seeing friends and family are within our reach. And I hope that that can also be within the reach globally, because it's clear that the U.S. and a few other countries have had large-scale vaccination campaigns, but we need to prioritize the vaccination campaigns at a global level as well. Ultimately, if we see virus circulating throughout the world, eventually this is going to spread and transmit and then being reintroduced through travel to countries that previously have been vaccinated. We just want to keep limiting the extent to which we're giving this virus more and more opportunities to evolve, transform, and potentially escape uh, the accrued benefits of these large-scale vaccine campaigns. Joshua Weitz is a quantitative biologist at Georgia Tech. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR.
WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's also where you can leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate and thanks.